Seth Essenson, and I am your host with NDFB Straight Talk. I am currently in Bismarck on a beautiful sunny day. Uh, I, 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 I haven't actually got a chance to check the weather. I think, Tom, you came in yesterday as well, but it's got to be at least 10 below here. And Yeah, you know, I just made the comment to the lady at the front desk that I'm going to have to get my oil changed, and I haven't even gone a mile because I'm having it run so long. <laughs> it's a cold one, but here we are in North Dakota, uh, joined by Professor Tom DeSutter from NDSU at the YFNR conference, Young Farm and Ranch conference. And um, Tom was kind enough to, to join us for, I think, a couple of different breakout sessions this morning. And Tom, you actually joined us for a discussion in soil re- reclamation. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do and, and what you had to share with our young farmer and ranchers today. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it was an honor to be invited. And uh, so one of the things that um, I started at NDSU in 2006, um, it wasn't until the last maybe five, six years that I got more involved in the reclamation research. Um, my background would, would geared more towards like the soil chemistry, soil management type uh, environments, which oftentimes the reclamation then fits into that realm as well. So so we started in about five, six years ago. Uh, one of our first projects was the the oil spill that happened north of Tioga. That really launched uh, in, a, in a good way, meeting new people, working on different projects such as in brine spills or pipeline reclamation areas of where the pipeline, uh, maybe not above the pipeline, but the, the right of way that suffers from compaction and low productivity. Those are the types of things that we've been working on. Great, great, really interesting. So, um, if you could, can you can you share a little bit about what you saw up there in in Tioga and places like Botno County about what happens? Um, obviously, we're an agricultural state, and and a lot of the land that that gets affected by any sort of of activity, whether it be coal mining, that um, you know, wind tower, compa- you know, issues of compactions like you like you discussed earlier. What does what 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 does that look like up there in Tioga and Botno for those folks? That, that, that maybe haven't had an opportunity to even hear about what, what's gone on there. Okay. Well, the uh, area in Tioga, that was, that, it was about a 21,000 barrel oil spill. And much of the spill in itself, because it's Bakken crude, is very, it, it can move around very well because it's not very thick. And that ended up moving in the soil, in the subsoil, mostly upwards to 55 feet below the low ground surface. So there was a, a very concerted effort to, dig up the contaminated um, subsoil, run it through what's called thermal desorption. This then allowed the the ending product to have a hydrocarbon concentration of less than, let's say, 1,000 parts per million. And then after a couple of years of doing all this, uh, the site was restructured, put back, and they're they're farming it today. Wow. So, so we weren't part of the remediation side. We were part of the... Let's see what we can learn on the reclamation side. So bring in the soils of that region, the soils of that disturbance back to productivity. So we had different plots looking at the, the thermal desorbed soil, subsoil that had uh, 2,000 parts per million of, of hydrocarbon in it, and then looking at uncontaminated, non-impacted topsoil. And then we did a comparison of, of those treatments plus we did a blend of topsoil plus 
um, the thermal desorption, and then a blend of the topsoil plus the subsoil. And then, so basically a one-to-one dilution on right. those. And what we learned after four growing seasons of uh, hard red spring mm-hmm. and peas, hard red spring, and then um, grain sorghum, was that the yields of whether you had 100% topsoil or whether you had the blends of the one-to-one, all those yields were the same. Wow. Which indicates to us that the, the key component really is the topsoil blending that in there. Because mm-hmm. part of the part of our our concern was, you know, they're not building any new more Walmart, uh, Kmart's, uh, big big buildings. So there's not a lot of extra topsoil that's being stripped off. So the landowners in themselves, where are they going to find topsoil? Right. And so can we can we make topsoil in a in a sense mm-hmm. um, by blending thir- certain things together to then still have a very productive environment for plants. So that that's really kind of where the end goal of that, that right. idea was. What type of advice would you have for farmers and ranchers who are are looking at whether it be leasing to wind towers, possibly working with an oil oil company? I mean there obviously is always a potential of some leak, whether it be brine. Our family personally, in terms of reclamation, I've seen it done done well with gravel, with you know, with, with and I've seen it done poorly. What 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 type of advice would you have for landowners themselves on on how to to really take take the responsibility to see to it that if there is an instance where you're you're going to have to be reclaiming some soil to to do a good job, right? And, and that's an excellent question. And part of the what my motivation for doing what I do is empowering people with knowledge. So, for example. Not everybody has what I stated in my talk, a PhD in soil science. So the level of knowledge about soils and soil productivity is really varied between the landowner, the state, the responsible company. And what the hope is, is that if we can get the landowner's conversation to be elevated about what questions to ask, therefore that drives up the, the criteria for reclamation. So if that's the case, then the reclamation will get done in a very positive way for everybody, not not just the landowner, but for the state and for the responsible company. So it's like this liability. Right. It's mental liability for the landowner. It's monetary liability for the responsible company. And it's monetary liability for the state because the state also has to monitor over time. And if the reclamation isn't done correctly, it costs everybody right. something. Right. So if we can get the conversation elevated, I think we can do a better job with reclamation long term. Absolutely. Are are there currently resources out there for producers, someone out there that that they can reach out to that can that can begin to help them with this process? So there is there's no soil czar, if you will, mm-hmm. across the state, which mm-hmm. I think you know would be a be an interesting uh, uh, job to have. Actually. Maybe the aid commissioner would take it. There you go. Maybe you should ask. <laughs> the, uh, um, but that would be, so the Williston Research and Extension Center, mm-hmm. we've had a pipeline research project there now for about five years. Very knowledgeable people there. Uh, Dr. Augustine, who's in in Dickinson, uh, he's a soil scientist himself. Mm-hmm. He, he would be a good, uh, a good resource. Dr. Miranda Meehan, she's with uh, Extension mm-hmm. on campus, and then myself. And most all of us can field some level of question. And if we don't know, like, for example, my relationship with Miranda, she's a very good rangeland person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anything to do with rangeland. You science, use her as a resource. I don't know anything about it, right? <laughs> so I know a lot about soils, 
I don't know anything about that. So that's where we, that's where we, her and I work really well together Great. in that aspect. Great. We'll point them your way. Good. Can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, you being willing to come down here all the way from Fargo on a very, <laughs> very cold day. Spend some time um, educating some young farmers and ranchers, most of whom are are now uh, out of college and in their in their egg industry professions or back home on the farmer ranch. And um, as farmers and ranchers, I think that we all don't necessarily agree on everything. But ultimately, we find a lot of common ground in, in wanting to leave things better than, than what we found them. And certainly, um, that's been a huge part of, of what you're, you're trying to help us with. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And the next uh, person that comes along that has, needs some advice on some reclamation, I will, I will definitely point them your way. So thank you very much for joining us, Tom. This is Pete's One Minute Pause. What a difference a day makes. One day in a discussion with folks can make a big difference on whether a bill passes or not. Last Friday, a bill died on the Senate floor. Everyone was shocked that it didn't have the support that we assumed it would have. By working individual senators telling them the importance of the bill, we were able to turn it around so that a bill that failed 19 to 26, when it came around on Monday for reconsideration, a legislator who wasn't in attendance on Friday was able to bring the bill back under reconsideration rules. The bill passed 38 to 9. It's an awfully good reminder that our system is set up in a really wonderful way for give and take, a bill that has some good merit and yet was overlooked by a lot of people or they didn't understand what that value was to our society, can be brought back, can be refleshed out, maybe amended a little bit, and then we'll pass final passage with an overwhelming vote. And it just shows that our system works very well in a collaborative way, in a nonpartisan way. This was a bill about veterinarians, and we know that in North Dakota Farm Bureau, we need a lot of veterinarians, and we need a lot of large animal veterinarians, particularly in the western part of the state. So that's Pete's one-minute pause talking about the value of the process and our ability to get something passed that at one time looked like it was on the trash heap of legislation, and now it's moving over to the House where we think it will be received favorably. This is Emery Melhoff, your North Dakota Public Policy Liaison, and I'm sitting in the Bismarck office today on this beautiful negative 10 below weather with um, Public Service Commissioner Randy Chrisman. I've known Randy for several years. We actually go pretty far back to my dad ran for U.S. Senate in 2006, and I think that's the first time I met Randy, and you were a state senator at the time, is that right? I was, and in and, and 06, that happened to be one of my re-election years, and, and so we uh, were in some parades together and uh, enjoyed that campaign, and it's hard to believe it's that many years ago already. I know, it's crazy, and then maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you ran for the Public Service Commission. You were elected in, was 2012. it? 2012. Okay. Yeah, and so I, I'd been on the uh, in the state senate from ni- the '94 election until the 2012 election when I was elected to the PSC. My whole time in the senate, the PSC was always a point of particular interest to me. In that, growing up in in the Hazen area and ranching there, I'm right in kind of the heart of coal country, and and uh, actually some of my pasture is right adjacent to old abandoned spoil piles from coal mining days of of long ago when when people didn't do reclamation and I, I see that and in 500 years from now it'll still be 
of an abandoned coal mine, as opposed to what's been done since the 70s in, in North Dakota, where this mine land is reclaimed into good, productive, usable farmland again. And I was always very impressed with that and, and that, and then other things that I was interested in, uh, energy generation, telecommunications, and things such as that is what caused me to, to uh, run for the Public Service Commission. Did you, I I'm just trying to remember, did you win by a pretty... Um, big margin back then, or was it a tight race? Well, it felt like a tight race to me. We ended up with, I guess, kind of a comfortable margin, but not the kind of margins that a lot of Republican candidates are experiencing these days. At that time, I don't think the Democrats had gone quite as far hard left as they yeah. have now. And, <laughs> and uh, so certainly not the margins that we've seen in this last election for a lot of our statewide candidates. You mentioned one of the reasons that you wanted to become a public service commissioner was the responsibility of reclamation. Could you just tell us a little bit about what reclamation is? The key thing is getting that land into uh, returning it to, to good and usable ag land again. Now, there's exceptions. Sometimes, uh, perhaps, if you're in an industrial area, maybe part of it's going to be used for something else, and so you wouldn't go through the trouble of worrying about topsoil there if, if there's a different end use. But for the most part, that's what we're talking about, is getting it back into productivity. Then there's different levels of productivity. Prime farmland, which doesn't mean just your good farmland. Prime farmland is an official designation mm -hmm. uh, through soil conservation offices. You know, that's expected to be returned to a, a prime farmland status again when it's done. So d different levels of, of reclamation. But for the most part, I, I think we think of just getting it back to good egg production again. It's interesting because we have all of these resources around us and we are fortunate to be able to utilize the resources. But when we either discontinue the use of a of a well or um, we're not able to capture wind or, or all the various reasons, the one resource that lasts indefinitely or forever is that land. It, it really is. And, and years ago, I think uh, people seemed to focus more on it uh, when, when a lot of the power plants that are up in, in the Mercer and Oliver and McLean County areas uh, were being planned uh, decades ago. Uh, that was a big concern because it seemed like our country's attention was more on billions of people on the planet and how do we feed them all as opposed to how can I get the, the most money out of an acre of land at, at this point or for the next few years. And, and so that, that actually was the impetus of, of a lot of the whole reclamation laws that we have with, with coal. But, um, right now you mentioned the, the various, uh, types of, of disturbances that, that land faces. And, and it is interesting because the, the various things that, that disrupt the land, whether it be the wind industry, the coal industry, gravel and scoria, oil and gas, um, kind of have different standards and uh, different areas that are in charge of enforcement of them. You mentioned, um, was it five things on that list that are industries that need reclamation afterwards? Gravel, wind, what else? These are pretty broad categories right. and a person could continue naming them, you know, even getting down to roads or homes and farms and, that are abandoned and things like that. But, but, but generally, I think, I think we think of the coal industry, which has a huge footprint, oil and gas activities, 
Wind has become a big one because there are literally hundreds of thousands of acres in North Dakota that are within the the footprint of of sited wind farms. Gravel and scoria production, which is you know kind of spotty, but generally all around the state, and and has has been quite a source of problems over the years because none of them are real big, but cumulatively there's a lot of acres of gravel and scoria pits that never were reclaimed very well, in my opinion. How is reclamation supposed to work and and who's supposed to do it? So obviously, as the Public Service Commission, you oversee a lot of the reclamation that happens. But when do you actually get involved? Is it the company that's supposed to do the reclaiming first? Or just tell us a little bit about how that's supposed to work. So I'm going to divide some of these out and, and you know, I have some some uh, more casual knowledge of some of the areas that aren't under public service commission jurisdiction, but better knowledge of the things that, that are under our jurisdiction. So like oil and gas falls under the industrial commission. And so we don't really have much to do with that. And, and a lot of reclamation issues there are when something goes wrong and there's a discharge that was unplanned. I, I know that there are some old oil and gas wells from, you know, when laws and rules weren't as good as they are now and they sit there and and uh, that's sad to see, but like old abandoned spoil piles from coal mines from the 60s and before, that's just the way it is. And, and I don't know what the solution to that is. I think from what I can tell nowadays, uh, th- there's pretty good programs in, in place through uh, the Industrial Commission to, to make sure that uh, there's, there's cleanup when that occurs up there. But I just don't have as much firsthand knowledge of it. Uh, coal mining was assigned to the Public Service Commission uh, back in the Actually, North Dakota started its own reclamation program in the late 60s. Then the feds jumped on board in the 70s, and we adapted our program to meet the standards of the federal program. There are some areas where we're actually a little stricter than federal requirements, but it uh, has worked since then. And and that is a public service commission jurisdiction. One of the things that I was very focused on in running for the public service commission, there were really no reclamation requirements for wind farms until these last few years. And I was insistent that that, that change, um, we can't leave these things abandoned. And in fact, even if you wanted to, um, at some point, everything becomes no longer useful. Uh, you know, whether we're talking years or decades or centuries, at some point they will no longer be useful. And wind farms can't even, if you wanted to leave the mess out there, they can't be abandoned because someone has to keep the lights on so that aircraft don't hit them. <laughs> so th- there's a big responsibility. So so we undertook the process of writing rules for reclamation of wind farms and then got the legislature actually to come on board and and specifically give us that authority to do that. And we have built a, a reclamation program that, of course, none have been abandoned uh, since we started this. And, and hopefully none do. Hopefully they, they follow these rules and, and just do things when they decide to no longer use one. But if that should happen, we do have something in place now. In the case of a large solar wind farm, there are none in North Dakota. But if there were, that also falls under our administrative rules. And then you get to the gravel and scoria, which is the other big one I mentioned. And sadly, that doesn't really fall under any agency. And that's why you see so many of them get abandoned 
Because frankly, if the company that someone contracts with to sell their gravel or scoria through, and if if they come in and, and mine that and, and walk away, it's left on the landowner to pursue them in district court. And many of these are only a few acres. And especially if the company that did it is not in the area or is potentially even no longer in business, it can be a very expensive proposition and it just doesn't pay to get the lawyers engaged to to go after them. And then if you do, will there be anything to get to force reclamation? And so, so that is a big problem that I, I think is really important for your listeners to consider when they're selling gravel or scoria rights to uh, be confident in, in, in how that's going to be reclaimed because there is no agency oversight to, to follow up on that for them. They're on their own to pursue it in district court. Obviously, salt, brine, spills, and oil and coal, all of that gets so much media attention. And I feel, I think that most people have uh, elementary knowledge of, of those programs, or at least know that they do happen. But the two that you mentioned, wind and gravel and scoria, just to make it more tangible, what does a wind reclamation project look like? Because obviously you see you, you see the wind towers that are sticking up and you mentioned they, ha- they have to go somewhere because, you know, if the lights aren't on, then something will hit them. But they're almost as tall down into the ground. Is that, is that not correct? Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're not that deep, but, but there is a lot of concrete. And there was some pushback on creating our reclamation program. I'll, I'll certainly assure you of that. I think if I had my druthers, they would have to remove all that concrete because I frankly don't think it was as big of a deal as some people made it out to be. You know, you would drill down and blast it just like coal mines do large rocks and then dig out the small pieces. It wasn't like they have to chip it away with a hammer and chisel. But uh, in in many of many of the wind turbines might have like a seven or eight foot thick slab of concrete that might be. 50 or 100, I can't remember the diameter of them. They're very large slabs of concrete that hold that in place. Our rules require them when they ultimately would remove a wind farm to not only take the part that's above ground, but also uh, remove everything down to a level of four feet below the surface. And so what they're essentially doing is starting that concrete pad four feet deeper than they used to and having four feet of fill over the top of it. And so most, for the most part, that concrete will stay there. But it's, it used to be three feet, and it was one of the things I insisted on that I thought four feet was much better because, mm-hmm. frankly, those of us who uh, have grown up in the cattle industry <laughs> know that you can't even uh, have a corner post that's going to last if it's only down three feet. So I wanted to at least be able to assure that you could sink a corner post. So so they, they have to remove everything down to four feet below ground, clean up their roads. If if In a lot of cases, the farmer's will want those roads. And if if that is the case, they can bring that to the Public Service Commission. And, and I think at that point, uh, if it's clear to the whoever's on the commission at that time, that in fact, this has a benefit to the to the producer, it probably will be allowed to be left in place. But if it's really not, if they're just trying to get out of cleaning it up, uh, technically, the roads need to be cleaned up as well. Things like the 
electric lines that are buried beneath ground, uh, they can, we usually allow those to be left in place because frankly, they're not going to impede development of something else. And mm-hmm. it's, it's actually more of a disruption to dig them out at that point than to abandon them in place. That's how our rules are for, for that future wind reclamation. And the, the, actually the most important part besides the details of what they have to do was how do you make sure they're going to do it? So if, you know, most companies, when they start something like this, there's, there's a corporation someplace and there's subsidiaries and price subsidiaries of those subsidiaries. And, and they're going to be out of state, some are out of the country. And so how are you going to track that down? So just like, and, and I'd like to talk too about the coal, because that's what we've had for all these years and, and is such an excellent program. We win awards almost annually from around the nation for our coal program. But one thing that we modeled after the coal program for wind and solar is they have to provide some financial assurances to the PSC based on estimated decommissioning costs where third-party engineers will estimate what this is going to cost to follow our rules. And then they have to provide you know, either bonding or collateral bonds or self-bonds. And, and self-bonds don't mean just saying, I promise, and, and uh, having your fingers crossed behind your back. Um, there's a legal uh, definition to it, and, and it's a pretty enforceable thing. And, and only companies with really good ratings from companies like Standard or Poor's or something would even be allowed to do a self-bond. So, so we do maintain financial assurances to assure that these things will happen if the company chooses to walk away from it or is unable to fulfill their obligations. Do you foresee that there would be anything in the future that would beef up the gravel reclamation? Um, Like you said, if the company refuses to do reclamation, the producer's only recourse is, is suing that company. Do you see any, any future for that? Or it's a, it's a tough thing. And you know, I, I was an ag producer till, till I came on board here. And, and you know, a lot of us were very uh, self-sufficient and uh, don't like other people intervening in our decisions. Um, stories I hear from up at home of the years when, when coal mine reclamation was being planned was that a lot of the people that had coal on their land didn't want it. They didn't want the state intervening because, frankly, if the coal mine didn't have to reclaim the land, they could pay a lot more for the mineral and for the surface disturbance. And so uh, this was actually going to lessen what that egg producer got for their land. And, and they knew once coal mining moves in, it would be disturbed for many years. They probably would never farm it again. This was something for their kids and grandkids. And, and they wanted the money. But the state decided that we have more of a long-term interest in this land. And it's unfair to future generations to just cash in now and then leave what was going to become tens of thousands of acres um, in a permanent mess. And so the reclamation laws were passed and we have what we have now, which is, you know, these acres being returned to usability. With Gravel and scoria, it's different because it's, it's such smaller tracks. And, and so in order to, to do something that would involve a government agency overseeing those deals, a lot of people pull back and say, no, I don't want that. Plus, it's going to lessen the resources that whoever's trying to acquire their gravel or scoria has to pay them. And, and so there's a lot of resistance to it. And I understand that. And, People are very confident, and believe me, I heard a ton of this when we were establishing our rules on the wind farms from people who were saying, 
you just mind your own business. I'm having it built right into my contract that they have to take this down. And and I'm getting two or three turbines. They're paying me very well. And, you know, I'll make sure it's written in there that they have to remove it. Until I'd point out to them that that company might not exist anymore. At best, mm-hmm. they will probably be several states away. And where are you going to get lawyers to enforce that in mm-hmm. district court? And, you know, it, it just it becomes impossible in the end for people to do that if it's for small tracts of land. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, like I say, um, I really don't like to add government intervention in these things either. So it's, it's strictly a legislative matter. I know it came up a couple times while I was in the Senate, uh, whether there should be something more than what there is. And it's always been determined that, that those are, are deals that egg producers uh, will take care of on their own. Like I say, they're they're not these huge tracts of land of tens of thousands of acres in one tract. And so the state of North Dakota has chosen to stay out of those deals. But I do think it's always worth pointing out to people that nobody has your back on that either. So make sure you know who you're dealing with and uh, maybe check around to see how they've dealt with landowners uh, some of the previous years and and maybe take some time and go look at what their reclamation looks like. When they say they reclaimed it, go see how well the grass is doing there and, and that kind of thing. And, and so uh, I'm not really an advocate for more intervention on that, but certainly um, like to take every opportunity I can to urge people to be cautious in their dealings. On that note, do you have any advice for our egg producers out there? Um, obviously, the North Dakota Farm Bureau prides itself in private property and being able to um, do on our property what we want and be able to bring the best value to the land that we've been given. Um, but obviously, with that comes the responsibility of stewardship and being good stewards of the resources that um, we've been given. And so do you have any um, advice to give them, whether they're interacting with industry or making decisions with different companies? Yeah, I think, you know, really one of the best things is um, take your time on these deals. Um, have someone with some some experience in it, review it, um, especially on larger deals, you know, a, a coal mine, a pipeline or something is going through that uh, wind farm that, that is, is where there's substantial dollars involved. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, oftentimes it's worth your money to to have things looked at. Um, talk to some other people. Find out who else this company has done business with and how they were to do business. Um, we've heard some complaints on on uh, some some wind developers from people who were very satisfied with particular developers, and some where they were not so satisfied and. And so it's not our job to put these landowners together and 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 intervene in that way. We handle our program as as our administrative rules and laws say we should. But but it, it's certainly if you're entering into a lease on any of these things, and especially with the gravel and scoria, where you're kind of on your own, um, I, I would certainly advise people to follow up and, and find out who some previous. Uh, people were that they've dealt with and and go and take a look at that. There is one other area that I would really advise caution on for people, and we haven't talked about it. And it's it's kind of new to North Dakota, but depending on how things go in the oil patch, it, it could be growing. Um, there's one for sure, and I, I think potentially a second uh, frac sand mine 
to be developed mm -hmm. up in, in my home county of Mercer. And I believe there's at least one up in McHenry County. And uh, it's kind of in between. It's larger than I think most of us think of when we think of a gravel or scoria mine, but it's certainly not on the scale of our lignite mines. But um, as far as I know, there is no agency overseeing that. And like in our coal mining, one of the most important parts of the reclamation is being up there and involved in it before they ever start mining. We are gathering all kinds of data on what kind of grass is there, what the terrain is, where does the above ground water flow, and what is going on with the below ground uh, aquifers. And, and so we have all kinds of data before anything is disrupted, so we can use that to know how things need to be reclaimed at the end. And so as these start, I don't know of anyone who is keeping track of any of that. And so even if you're planning on enforcing reclamation there uh, on, on your own through district court, um, it could be a tough sell at some mm -hmm. point to convince a court that whatever they did is not adequate if you don't have evidence of what was there before. Hmm. And so that is one of the tremendous things about the coal reclamation program is that we're there before it gets disrupted. We're there the entire time monitoring it. For instance, they have to save their subsoil in a separate pile, the topsoil in a separate pile. We're, we make sure that those things are seeded over so that over the course of the years when it's disrupted, it's not all blowing away on our dry, stormy days. Um, I don't know that anyone is doing that at these frac sand mines. And for now, it's just a few and they're not real big acreage. But if that really takes off, it could be a concern and, and one that um, perhaps the legislature or maybe people want to urge legislators to take a look at whether they want to put that under our jurisdiction or, or someone else's jurisdiction for that matter. Well, thanks so much, Randy. I really appreciate you being here today. And um, just as we as young producers are looking at uh, coming back to the family farm in lots of cases and the desire that we have to continue that farm and ranch for our posterity, just remembering the responsibility that we have to make sure that we take good care of it as well. So it is. It's one of the things much. that brings me that the most joy in my job is, and I know people kind of feel like it should move faster, but it, it takes the time it takes. And, and as we release coal mine land uh, from their bonding requirements, um, making sure that that is, in fact, good, useful, productive land. Is it perfect? No, probably no land is, but it's very good. And, and uh, I th I'm very grateful for those people that made hard decisions years ago to, to start that reclamation uh, process. And uh, it's good for my generation, and, and it'll serve future generations uh, for well, for generations to come, I guess, is the best way to put it. It's awesome. Thanks well, for having me. Yeah, thank you again. I hope you have a good day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Straight Talk with NDFB. If you have a topic of concern that you would like to hear us discuss, please drop me a line at seth at ndfb.org.